Well, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. It's in the New Testament, uh, the second of the Gospels there. Today, we're going to begin a four-part series through Mark's Gospels, Gospel, covering several different themes. And by way of introduction to this Gospel, let me share some of Mark's unique elements. Mark is one of the shortest Gospels, and it moves rather rapidly through the ministry of Jesus to get to the cross. One of Mark's favorite words is immediately. And it often draws attention to the effectiveness of Jesus' work. Mark is also a pretty vivid writer. It's one of the reasons I love reading his gospel. He provides details that really draw us into the story of Jesus Christ. It is largely held that Mark was the first gospel recorded and that it was written in Rome by John Mark, who traveled around with several apostles, and it was based upon the testimony of Peter. I would agree with many scholars who suggest that this gospel holds two main emphases. The first being Christology, which is just a theological word that means the study of the person, the nature, and the role of Jesus Christ. And the second emphasis is on discipleship. For this series, we will focus our attention on the Christology of Mark. Because I believe that our discipleship flows from our understanding of who Jesus is. In other words, the better we know Christ, the more we will desire to be a disciple of Christ. I also believe that this is Mark's main purpose. I had a seminary professor tell me once that Uh, He calls all the gospel writers evangelists. He doesn't call them by name. He just says the evangelist said because he wants to remind himself that the gospel writers have a purpose and that is to get us to believe and know Jesus Christ. Notice how Mark begins the beginning of his gospel in Mark 1.1. He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Every aspect of this opening statement carries weight. The word for gospel means good news or glad tidings. For the Jewish reader, this word probably would have reminded them of Isaiah 52, 7, which says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. For the Roman reader, this word would have been used to convey a message that would change the course of history. Typically, it was used to announce the birth of a new emperor. So Mark says, this is the beginning of this kind of news. But notice what the good news is. It's good news of a person. The gospel is good news of a person. And these words continue to carry weight. The name Jesus in Hebrew is Yahshua, 
which means Yahweh is salvation. And the name Christ is not a last name like Smith or Jones or the last names here that I cannot pronounce, but it's a title and it means the Messiah or the anointed one. And then finally, Mark adds the son of God, which is a vitally important name to remember in his gospel. Because as we will see, this name conveys Jesus Christ's full divine status. He is of the very nature of God, Mark is saying. So what we see as we open this letter that was distributed to churches around the area, that this is primarily about a person. It's about Jesus, the Messiah, God who became flesh. Now don't misunderstand me. There are so many things that you can learn from the gospel of Mark about discipleship. What I want to encourage you to do, and I I think this is good with any time we sit down in the word, is to first read the word in order to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. The word of God tells us that this will transform our lives in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So let's fix our gaze directly on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And let's pray that the Lord would give us eyes to see him in all of his glory. Today, we're going to be looking at Mark's display of the authority and the priority of the Son of God. Starting with Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 39. Turn there with me. Here we see the authority and the priority disclosed. Starting in verse 21. And they went to Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. 
And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now we want, we want to remember when we read the Gospels that we're reading a story. We're reading a story that's supposed to captivate our minds and our hearts. So what I like to do when I read the Gospels is picture it as scenes in a play or a movie and try to really get myself into the story. So we see the scene opens rather abruptly. Jesus and the disciples arrive in Capernaum, and immediately Jesus goes into the synagogue to teach. And right away, we see that there is something unique about his teaching. Mark records that people were astonished. This word is actually repeated often in Mark's gospel, and it means being shocked in an astounding way. It actually carries the idea of being disturbed. And notice why they were shocked. For, because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. You see, Jesus Christ taught with an authority unlike anything that anyone had ever heard before. The scribes were the teachers of the law. And they were known for their teaching. But their teaching largely hinged on quoting Moses or another rabbi to prove their point. You see, they leaned on another's authority. Jesus' teaching was very different. We know a little bit about his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he repeatedly says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and often he quoted scripture following this. You see, this is astonishing teaching. Jesus did not lean on anyone else's authority. He didn't lean on the authority of Moses or on a rabbi who went before him. He superseded all of that authority with his authority. He says, I say to you. Don't move on too quickly from this. Recognize that Jesus taught with the authority of the very one who spoke the commands in the first place. So then we see the drama unfold as a conflict is presented which moves us to Mark's main point. The teaching of Jesus was so authoritative that a man possessed by an unclean spirit comes in crying out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
You see, while all others are astonished, this spirit recognizes who Jesus is, and he wants nothing to do with him. He wants Jesus to go away because he knows Jesus' presence means one thing. It means the defeat of the powers of darkness is imminent. Notice that he's not just concerned with himself. He says, us. Now the conflict reaches its climax with the next words. For the spirit did not come submissively to Jesus. You see, when he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, this is probably a frantic attempt by the Spirit to bring Jesus under his power. In his book, The Gospel of Mark, Hugh Anderson points out that during this time, it was largely believed that the exact knowledge of another's name brought mastery or control over him. So the Spirit comes and he cries out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But as we see next, this was a futile attempt because Jesus holds full authority over all the dominion of darkness. With one short sentence, he rebukes the Spirit and being unable to speak, it departs with an inarticulate howling. Notice the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. He didn't recite any incantation. He didn't identify himself with another deity or power as most exorcists of that day would have. He simply says, be silent and come out of him. And the spirit has to leave. It's no wonder the people there were all amazed. They had never seen anything like this. William Lane comments, There was no category familiar to them which explained the sovereign authority with which Jesus spoke and acted. So they simply marvel that even the unclean spirits obey his word. What authority what power? Who is this man? Now, pay attention to what follows in verses 29 through 39. Because it informs us greatly about this Son of God. It is still the same day. Mark uses the word immediately. They leave the synagogue and they enter the house of the disciples. Simon's mother-in-law is sick with a fever, and Jesus comes, takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and the fever is gone. There's no sign of weakness, no sign of fatigue, because she immediately begins to serve them. I love what one pastor pointed out here. He pointed out that Jesus is not just concerned about public displays of his authority and power. He is also compassionate toward those around him when few people are watching. See, he doesn't need his fame to spread. Then, as we see in verses 32 through 34, the whole city is now at the door. 
And Jesus is healing all kinds of diseases and casting out all demons, not permitting any of them to speak because they knew him. You see, his authority over the dominion of darkness is full and it's substantial. He doesn't just cast out one demon, he casts them all out, permitting none of them to say who he is. This is truly astonishing authority. Is it not? However, what I want us to notice is the connection to the final scene in our passage, which takes place the following morning in verses 35 through 39. What does Jesus do with this authority? Mark records that Jesus rose early in the morning for prayer. And people are probably gathering at the door looking for more healings. So the disciples go out and they look for Jesus. And when they find him, they say, everyone is looking for you. There's a hint of reproach in this statement. But look at the response of Jesus. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Picture the scene. Jesus, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Your fame is spreading. You're gaining followers by the minutes. They're at the door again. People are amazed at what you can do. Jesus responds. Let's go on to the next towns so that I can preach. For that's why I came. How can preaching be more important than healing sickness and casting out demons? Pastor C.J. Mahaney helps here. He says, Jesus came for a different and much more significant purpose. He was moved with compassion for those he healed the previous day. He did exercise his authority and he reversed the effects of the fall, but that reversal was temporary. All those he healed would eventually die. Church, do you see? There is something more important for Jesus to accomplish than healing diseases and sicknesses, casting out demons. And we see that it's accomplished through his preaching. Healing is temporary. This is eternal. There's something much greater that we all need in our lives than the healing of illness or sickness or disease. And our next story begins to open up what that is. Turn now to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Here we see the authority and the priority exposed. Verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days... It was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together 
so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. First, notice the similarities in our two stories. Jesus is in Capernaum. He's at a home, probably the disciples' home again. He is teaching again, only this time he's in the home instead of the synagogue. And many people from the city have come to him, so much so that there's not even room at the door. You see, I believe there's a reason behind these similarities. Through the providence of God and the record of Mark, many details are just like the first story when Jesus is in Capernaum, are they not? Everyone is looking for him to heal their diseases again. But there's a vastly important difference in this story. And let's pay attention to what it's telling us. Get ourselves into the scene. The scene is set. Jesus has returned to Capernaum after traveling around and preaching in Galilee. He's in a home and he's preaching the word to them. The home is crowded and there are scribes there to listen to him this time. In fact, Luke 5.17 tells us that the scribes have come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Jesus' fame has spread. And the stage is set perfectly. So next we read about men who come carrying a paralytic on the bed down the road. They get to the house. There's no room at the door. So they climb up the stairs to the roof and they start to dig through the roof. Thatches, dirt, Everything coming about. Now, there's so much that we could say about these men and what they have done for this paralytic. But I want us to focus our attention on what Jesus does. For this moment, we'll focus on him. Dust and dirt are falling from the ceiling. Everyone is probably moving out of the way, wondering what's going on. 
while the paralytic is lowered through the roof. Mark tells us that Jesus sees their faith and he turns to the paralytic and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Take a moment to let that sink in, especially in light of what has been revealed in this letter so far. Jesus spoke a few words and the spirit had to obey. He picked up Simon's mother-in-law by the hand and she was healed. In Mark 1, 40 through 42, right before this story, he stretched out the hand of a leper, touched him, and he healed him. But to this man, he says, your sins are forgiven. What a shocking statement that is. However, it doesn't come from nowhere. You see, William Lane points out as well, in the Old Testament, healing is often conditioned by the forgiveness of God. And it's often the demonstration of that forgiveness. Now, this doesn't mean that this paralyzed man was paralyzed because of a specific sin. And it doesn't mean that his sin was greater than everyone else's sin. It only means that sin and disease held a connection that the audience would have had in mind. And so Jesus and Mark use that connection. The story continues. The scribes are thrown into a panic. You can feel the tension in the room. And they ask themselves, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. This is the climax of the problem in the story. And Mark and Jesus use this to show us something great. You see, Jesus perceives their questioning and he asks them, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now let's be clear, both are impossible for man to say and only possible for God. But in one sense, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven. Who can verify that? In another, it's very dangerous because if you're wrong, you are blaspheming. Because only God can forgive sins. God is the one who forgives our iniquities and blots out our transgressions according to Psalm 32.5. In Isaiah 43, 25. Yes, precisely. That is what Jesus wants us to be thinking. So that the next moments land on us with the weight that they should. Notice the word but in verse 10. This is a pivotal transition. The resolution to our story. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Pause. Think about this moment. Everyone is on the edge of their seat. What 
will happen. If this man rises and walks, then Jesus' pronouncement of his sins being forgiven is true. If he does not, the scribes are going to stone him. What is going to happen? Verse 12. I love how Mark writes this. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. The paralytic was healed. He rose up. He picked up his bed and he went home. So they are all amazed and glorify God saying, we never saw anything like this. Never have they seen such power and authority. Now let's think about this for a moment. Had they never seen a miracle like this? A paralytic healed? Well, perhaps not. But I do think they probably saw many things similar to this. So when they say we never saw anything like this, they're not just talking about the healing. They're talking about a man having the authority to pronounce the forgiveness of sins and proving that authority through the miracle. That is what is happening. What does this say about who this man is? It says everything. And we would do well to stop and to think on who Jesus of Nazareth truly is and what he came to do. And that is precisely why we are here this morning. That is precisely what Mark wants for us to do. You see, he's building his portrait of Jesus and he begins by causing his readers to have to ponder what these episodes are telling us about this Jesus of Nazareth. Listen, there is little debate about whether a man named Jesus lived 2,000 years ago in this period. It is recorded in history. It is irrefutable that he lived. What has to be debated is who he was. Some say he was a good man. Others say he was a lunatic. Some are willing to say he was a great prophet. But not Mark. Mark paints a vivid picture to show us that Jesus of Nazareth was so much more than any of those things. He rebuked demons and they obeyed his word. He healed Simon's mother-in-law with the simple grasp of the hand. He healed many people and cast out many demons. And not only did he heal the paralytic, but he forgave him of his sins. Something that only God can do. So I was trying to think of how we apply this to our lives. And I think we do this by answering three questions. Our first question is the primary one that I believe Mark wants us to wrestle with. Do we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? We cannot fail to address 
that question. He claimed to have equal authority with God to forgive sins in the home in Capernaum. Do you believe that God became flesh and dwelt among us? Do you believe that Jesus is fully divine, equal in power and authority with God the Father? That is the first thing we have to answer. The second is, how do we personally respond to the commands of Jesus? The unclean spirit obeyed him. Simon's mother-in-law served him. The paralytic obeyed, taking up his bed and walking home. The scribes questioned, do you obey his word? Do you honor him as who he is? Have you given him the place he deserves over your heart and your life? And the final question I believe these stories cause us to answer is, do we have faith in the authority of the Son of God? You see, faith in the Bible is not something mystical or lighthearted. The biblical term for faith means trust. Firm, rooted, deep trust. Do you trust in the authority of the Son of God? Do you trust that he rules over the dominion of darkness? If you do, you will seek to put on the armor of God that we've been talking about. If we believe and trust in the authority of the Son of God, we will pray for the Spirit's work in our lives and in others. Here's another question. Do you trust that Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins? Listen. This is the most important question that we can ever answer. Because without the forgiveness of sins, we remain separated from God. We remain under his wrath. Do you believe that Jesus can and will forgive your sins if you trust in him? That is what he came to do. That is the contrast Mark is making between these two stories and having them together like they are. You see, Jesus left Capernaum when everyone wanted to be healed because he needed to preach the gospel. And he came back to Capernaum to preach the gospel. And he said to this paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven to preach the gospel. And Mark, as we'll see, is making a beeline to the way in which that forgiveness is secured at the cross of Jesus Christ. The work that he did on the cross purchased the forgiveness of our sins. Do you believe he can and will forgive you of your sins if you trust his sacrifice on the cross? It doesn't matter how light or grievous you think those sins are, he can and will forgive 
all who come to him in faith. He will give you new life. He will place his righteousness on you in replace of your sins on him on the cross. He paid for them there. He bore the wrath of God for our sins. And he says to us, trust in my work on that cross. Trust me, rise and walk in the newness of life. So church, those who are visiting, what will you do with the authority and the priority of the Son of God? What will you do with this man, Jesus Christ? Stand together with me. Let me pray this word into our hearts and our minds. Father, your word has shown us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That he has authority over the dominion of darkness. And that he has the authority to pronounce forgiveness of our sins. God, for those who are in Christ, I pray that you would seal that word on their hearts. That Satan's schemes to distract them and to deter them and to make them think that they are not forgiven will fall flat that they will rest on the authority of Jesus to forgive their sins and they will trust that that was paid for and purchased at the cross of Jesus Christ. And God, for those who do not know you in this room, I pray that you would show them your son. I pray that you would display to them the glory of Jesus Christ that they would trust in you and in him as their savior. Give us grace to live in light of this truth. In Jesus' name I pray.